Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Braden Enterman. It's very good for me to be here this week and to see all your smiling faces. And I don't know what kind of week that you've had, but I just want to remind every single one of you that something hasn't changed, and that is God's love for you. It hasn't changed. And no, no matter what circumstance you go through, that will not change. It's a fact in, in a world that's very subjective. Who's enjoyed the, this, the past four creation evolution sermons in our series? This is actually our last one of this five-part series, and I've entitled the sermon, The Greatest Evidence for Creation. And I'm going to be looking at the, the age of the earth, partly, and also some things to do with this particular title right here. So I'd just like to invite you to bow your heads once again. Father God, I want to thank you so much for your grace and for your goodness. And I want to thank you so much, Lord God, for, for creating this place and for creating us. Lord, we do not have a right to life. It's a gift. Everything that you give to us is a gift. Life itself is a gift, and grace is a gift. Salvation is a gift, and we thank you for all of it. I would like to pray, Father, for your spirit to speak through me. I pray for strength, and that you would guide me in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to begin by asking you a question. If you, want to find, if you want to find truth, what is the most important attribute that you need? If you want to find truth, what is the most important attribute that you need? Is it determination? Is it intellect? Openness. I found this humility beautiful. I found, pardon? Curiosity, that's also another one as well. Does anyone recognize this, this big ship right here? The Titanic. On April 15, 1912, this ship sunk to the bottom of the sea on its maiden voyage across the Atlantic. And does anyone remember, there was a guy who was the, the representative of the White Star Line. He was like the owner of the ship. Uh, someone, Bruce Ismay. Now, what was his contribution to the disaster that day? Not enough lifeboats? Because it was a bit of a eyesore having so many lifeboats hanging off the side, he decided to go from like 48 down to like 16, I believe. This massive thing, and so many people could have been saved if he had have done that. Another thing that he did, he, he told the captain to go full speed across the Atlantic. There were warnings. There was, there was danger signs because there's um, icebergs that have been noted and other, other ships were radioing through and, and letting them know, but he wanted to set a record. It was pride. It was pride that ultimately caused that ship to go down. One man's ego was just inflated and he got, brought the lifeboats down to like 16. He told the ship to go full speed ahead and I wonder what would have happened if that man had been humble. Pride is the great enemy of objectivity. And this is one of the things that I've been noticing this week. As I've been researching on this topic, you'll read one website, it'll say this. 
you'll have one evolutionist. One evolutionist will be absolutely smashing the creationist perspective. Then you'll have a creationist which will be like, that's ridiculous. And they'll just be back and forward, back and forward, back and forward, back and forward. You'll find one argument here. You'll find a counter-argument here. You'll find an argument here. You'll find a counter-argument here. And it just seems this massive, big mess. You'll have the evolutionists, which often in the scientific community, they'll be saying, you know, these Christians are being very, very narrow-minded. They're, they're being very, very biased in their research because they want it to be this way, but they need to be more open-minded like us. Friends, pride is the great enemy of objectivity. In addressing these particular topics of creation and evolution, if there is pride of opinion, the, the answers and the results will always be skewed in, in the favour of the perspective that you're looking for. What do you think about this? Eric Fromm in the book Art of Loving. The faculty to think objectively is reason. The emotional attitude behind reason is that of humility. To be objective, that is to use one's reason, is possible only if one has achieved an attitude of humility. If one has emerged from the dreams of omniscience and omnipotence, which one has as a child. What do you guys think of that? In every part of our lives, let alone this topic of creation and evolution, humility is that essential element to be able to find what is true. When pride is mixed in with that, the results will always be skewed in favour of what you're looking for. Another guy by the name of Howard Zinn, he said this, Why should we cherish objectivity as if ideas were innocent, as if they don't serve one interest or another? Surely we want to be objective if that means telling the truth as we see it, not concealing information that may be embarrassing to our point of view. But we don't want to be objective if it means pretending that ideas don't play a part in the social struggles of our time. That we don't take sides in those struggles. Indeed, it is impossible to be neutral. In a world already moving in a certain direction, or in certain directions, where wealth and power are already distributed in certain ways, neutrality means accepting the way things are now. In a world of clashing interests, war against peace, nationalism against internationalism, equality against greed, democracy, democracy against elitism, creation against evolution, and it seems to me both impossible and undesirable to be neutral in these conflicts. It's a big quotation, but I, what I get out of this particular quotation is that every single person on this planet is taking a side on something. There's no one who is genuinely neutral. Neutrality in this world is impossible. You're either pushing the car in this direction or you're pushing it in this direction. You're either looking for answers in this direction, you're either looking for answers in this direction. Every single one of us is on a side. And there's reasons why we're on those sides. Interesting quotes. Every single person on planet Earth sees the world through a, spe uh, a, a specific lens. When an evolutionist who, has, who believes that there is no God and that the world came into being roughly four and a half billion years ago, when they look at archaeology, they look at something they've found, they look at something, what are they assuming the results are going to prove? That the Earth is four and a half billion years old. When a creationist comes to the exact same thing, they're looking at the exact same thing but through different lenses and they say, here is proof of a, of a 6,000-year-old world. 
And this is what I find over and over and over again. The same evidence, you look at it this way, they'll be like, no, this is proof for this. And you look at it this way, no, 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 this is proof for this. Just a brief illustration. This jacket here, guess how much it cost me? Oh, I wish it was $2. $30. $30. $30. I got it from an op shop down in Sydney, and I just, I like op shopping in Sydney because you get nice clothes, I think this is a nice jacket, and you get it for real cheap. I walked into this particular op shop and there's, everything is like size extra large, which I find I can't fit into, and my size I hardly ever find. And I found this jacket and I was like, Callum, I was shopping with my brother, I said, I've got this awesome jacket. And I literally grabbed onto it. I didn't want to put it back there, you know. I've, I'm taking this jacket home, and I continued shopping. And uh, I took it, took it to the checkout, and it was thirty dollars. I mean, like, it, it seemed like there's hardly any marks on it at all. And I bought this thing. I was like, this here is coming with me. But how did it get there? How did it get into the shop? At some point, a few weeks before, some fellow down in Sydney had gone through his wardrobe and gone, ugh. Yeah, man, this thing's so outdated. I'm going to take it. And he just literally couldn't even bother to sell it on Gumtree. He's literally like, I'm, I'm just sick and tired of this. It's just taking up space in my wardrobe. And I'm literally just going to give it away. Takes it down to, I think it was Vinny's in um, Sydney there, and just gave it away. It was worthless to him. You know that statement, one man's trash is another man's treasure. It's two different perspectives. You've got this guy here who thinks it's, thinks it's trash, it's not even worth selling on Gumtree, and me, I literally don't want to put it down and I wear it most Sabbaths, because I think it's awesome. We all have different ways of seeing things. This here is trash to someone, but it's treasure to me. It's unfashionable for someone, but it's fashionable for me. We have different ways of looking at the same thing. I want to give you one perspective. This guy by the name of C. Stuart Hardwick, this is what he said. The Earth solidified 4.54 billion years ago, plus or minus 1%. That's a fact, and if your belief is not aligned to this fact, then you are what we call wrong. <laughs> so this is, this is a perspective on the age of the Earth. You can read this, it's, it's, all, it's all over books and textbooks and various things like that. And it's accurate to the plus or minus 1%. Let's have a look at what Christians believe, in general, what they believe to be the age of the earth. Human history can be divided up into three sections, totaling up to about 6,000 years. And I know Lyle has used this slide before. There's four events that divide up human history. Creation of the world, and I'll move out the road for anyone that needs to see it. The creation of the world, the global flood, Christ's first coming, Christ's second coming is the final thing. The Bible's written during that period right there. You get some various Bible authors. And I find it so interesting that when we look at the ages of people who lived in the Bible, you've got Adam, you've got Methuselah, you've got Shem, and then you've got the 12 tribes of Israel, you've got this connectedness right back to the time of creation. In fact, the children of Israel had a third-hand account of the Garden of Eden and a first-hand account of the flood because Shem was alive when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were alive. This is just a perspective of Bible history on the age of the earth. Let me compare these two things for us. 
the theory of evolution. In the beginning, there was nothing. Nothing exploded. Everything came into being that was over a long period of time through death and suffering. The Christian perspective, in the beginning, there was God. God spoke. Everything came into being immediately through love and intentionality. Now, these are the two main positions that are vying for our attention in the world today. There might be some other ones, but these are the two main ones that we will come across. Now, both of these things demand faith on our part. Because in the beginning there was nothing and nothing exploded. In the beginning there was God and God spoke. Both of these models are are very, very, just beyond our understanding in so many ways because we were not there plainly. But these are the two particular models that we see in our world today. When, when I read a lot of the... And I've been reading through so much stuff this week, all these scientific articles and stuff like that. There's this, there's this uh, attitude that's kind of communi- communicated to me that all of the answers have been found. And there's just authority, and there's literally... It's like plus or minus 1%, that kind of like... Um, uh, um, yeah... They think that that's the accuracy. But what, what about before the Big Bang? What's the consensus on that? A guy by the name of Robert Lamb said this. What existed before the Big Bang? It's still an open question. Perhaps nothing, perhaps another universe or a different version of our own. Perhaps a sea of universes, each with a different set of laws dictating its physical reality. Friends, you can just literally research what is the consensus on what happened before the Big Bang. No one has a clue. No one has a clue. What caused the Big Bang? Ah, uh, it could have been this, could have been, could have been this. And the reason I'm, I'm telling you this is because the whole theory of evolution, there's still so much development that needs to take place before it can be truly trustworthy, uh, if that makes sense. What caused the Big Bang? No idea. No idea. No idea. Now, so... I want to just touch back to the sermon that I I, uh, shared a few weeks ago, and it was an unnatural selection. And I was looking at how how it's very unnatural that people would choose a worldview that removes all hope for the present, or all meaning for the present, and all hope for the future. It seems very unnatural. And I've just been thinking about the Bible history. Why is it that people are so skeptical to take this seriously? What is the elephant in the room? And I found two of them. As we've been sharing through this um, series, there's two major things that really are a stumbling block to people who believe in evolution. It's the idea of a miraculous six-day literal creation and the global flood. And I I discovered that people's conceptions of whether the miraculous even exists, that determines everything. You know, when we read in the Bible, we we believe in a God who speaks and things happen. We believe in a God who walks on water. We believe in a God who raises the dead. We believe in the miraculous. We believe in angels. We believe in the spiritual realm. But if you do not believe in that, these these are not. This is not a viable alternative. This cannot be what you're looking for. So you're going to have to look for answers in another area. So how old is the world? Now, this slide took me forever to make, just forever to make. Um, <laughs> but I want to just give you a bit of a smorgasbord of options for how old the world is. This is 32 of roughly 50 that I found different authoritative calculations for the age of the Earth. 
And when I say that, this is not Braden in his, in his room that's coming up with an idea. This is like, people have believed this at some point in time. The very youngest calculation is that the world is 5,600 years old, roughly. Um, we have Usher's chronology, probably one of the more famous ones around here, that the Earth was created around 4004 BC. Um, we have, uh, what was his name? Josephus. I have a feeling that this was Josephus' calculation that the world was created 6,000 years before Christ, so that would make the world 8,000 years old. And then we have, even a humanist had something down here, I can't remember what it was. But as we go around, we see the numbers getting bigger and bigger. But notice, 75% of them are young Earth calculations and estimations. Um, and then we have these whopping big ones right here. This infinite infinity option up here, this was Greek um, perspectives back in the day. They believed that, I think it was Aristotle, believed that the, the Earth has never had a beginning, that matter itself is eternal. That idea has kind of been debunked, and scientists don't believe that the, thing, that the universe and the Earth has been around forever. You've got right here, there's 23 billion, or whatever it is. That's, I think, ancient Chinese. And then this one right here is the age of the Earth according to um, evolutionists today. There's just a rough estimate. But if you were going to make an authoritative stand on something, when you see how many options there are and how many people, intelligent people, have tried desperately to calculate it, we see here that there is so much dividedness of perspective. Can you see that? There's even just with the short age stuff, that the world is 6,000, look at all the different, the different dates. But probably the main ones today is this area here and this one right here. Now, I just want to make a note here. If the Earth is proven to be 6,000 years old, then the Bible is true and God exists because it would be impossible for evolution to run its course in so short a period of time. That makes sense? If any, if any dating methods or whatever bring out that figure, God is automatically God is automatically real. The Bible is trustworthy. Genesis account is absolutely true because there's no way that evolution could take place in so short a period of time. So I just want to run you through a few things and then I'll get to the main part of the message. How do they arrive at 4.5 billion years old? How do, we, how do we work at our own ages? How do you know how old I am? Or how old are you guys? Like, how do I work that out? Birthdays, we have birthdays, right? We have birth certificates that help us to, to, to know those things. But another thing we can kind of go is that's a very short human being right there. And so we're like, that's a young person. And we try to work it out, and we, we have very accurate ways of determining how old we are. Some people don't know the age of their birth, though. But how do we know the age of this particular rostrum right here? When was it created? It doesn't come with a birth certificate attached. What about um, this right here? What about my shoes? There's, how old are they? This is, I want to run you through some of the methods of dating. Has anyone heard of radiometric dating before? Oh, it just looks fun, doesn't it? <laughs> this is some of the dating methods. You've got the uranium lead dating, thorium lead, uh, rubidium strontium, potassium argon, and carbon-14 dating, which is probably the one that's a little more famous. Now, let me do my best now just to explain it simply. 
Carbon, this is the standard carbon atom, and everything, most things living have carbon in it. So this has carbon inside of it. But up in the atmosphere, nitrogen, hit by rays from the sun, is actually altered and becomes carbon-14. Some things are knocked off it. And carbon-14 is a radioactive element. Now, carbon-14 is then in the atmosphere. We breathe it in. Plants, uh, sorry, plants breathe it in. We eat the plants or the animals. And a certain amount of carbon-14 ends up inside of us. Mainly normal carbon, but a little bit of this radioactive carbon. Now, this carbon, once we die or, or a particular tree is cut down, it has a decay rate of a little over 5,000 years before half of it disappears. So every 5,000 years, half of that, that um, carbon-14 just breaks down and becomes normal carbon. And so what they've done is they've gone, well, if we have a look at this particular, um, what used to be a tree, this, this um, pulpit right here, we can calculate how much carbon-14 is in it and then we can calculate, okay, well, we know the decay rate, and therefore it was cut down on this particular date. And it sounds pretty good in theory. One of the other models, so we've got the uranium lead dating. If you ever wondered why we have 4.4 billion or 4.5 billion years, that's how old the Earth is apparently. Is anyone from WA? I know Brad, you're from WA. You're, a cul you're the culprit today. <laughs> this particular piece of rock, this particular gemstone, was actually found in WA, and they did this dating method on it, and it came up to be 4.4 billion years old using the uranium lead dating method. But I just want to ask this question here, is radiometric dating accurate? And there's just so much stuff you can read. I encourage you to read, it's actually quite, quite interesting. But I just want to run through a few things. Uh, Professor Brew in the 12th Nobel Symposium said this, if a carbon-14 date supports our theories, we put it in the main text. If it does not completely contradict them, we put it in the footnote. And if it is completely out of date, then we just drop it. This one here. It may come as a shock to some, but fewer than 50% of the radiocarbon dates from geological and archaeological samples in North America have been adopted as acceptable by investigators. I'm not going to go deep into all this stuff. I'm just sharing with you a few things here. So can we trust radiometric dating? The first thing I want to just note is there are major assumptions with all of these dating methods that have been made. The first one is that the Earth is billions of years old, hence why you discard certain dates that don't match up. You assume the initial isotope ratio, which you're assuming that when the particular tree died or when the particular rock was formed, there was a certain ratio of normal, normal carbon atoms and carbon-14 atoms. That's an assumption. That the conditions were the same as today that there's been no contamination, that more has been put in or taken out, and that the decay rate has been constant. There's been scientific research and discoveries made that the decay rate can be altered by a number of different things. And if any of these things are out of, out of whack or altered or changed, the whole thing is proven to be untrustworthy. So much so, uh, actually before I get there, it's very much like an hourglass. Is it possible to work out when an hourglass started? If you know the flow, the, the, the flow rate, and then you know, the, you know how much is there in total, it's actually, you're able to work it out. 
But the assumption is, if we were trying to calculate, we'd have to say, well, the flow rate must have been consistent, otherwise it's just pointless trying to calculate it. We would assume that no one's turned it on its side midway through the, um, its, its cycle, and we've also assumed that no one's added more sand. If any of those things have changed, then our attempts to calculate when that thing started are completely out of whack. For example, freshly killed seals have been dated as being 1,300 years old. Living wood has been dated to be 10,000 years old, and living snails as living 2,300 years ago, and they're still alive. This is just some examples of some of the anomalies in the data. Mount St. Helens, this is very interesting right here. They actually did some carbon dating, I think it was also potassium argon dating, on the, the newly formed rock from this volcanic eruption. Now that was what in, was in the 80s or the 70s, I think? In the 80s. When they dated it, it came up that it was between 340,000 and 2.8 million years old, this newly formed rock. And I'm just sharing with these things with you guys because we do not need to be intimidated. It's often the person with the microphone that is intimidating. And in, in the media and through textbooks and academic circles, the one who has the microphone can be quite intimidating. But this is the best that we've got. The scientific community, community has no idea what happened before the Big Bang. And even the methods that they use to kind of make the world really long they're proven over and over again to be unreliable. They only keep less than 50% of the results. And if they don't agree with their already preconceived ideas, they discard the results anyway. That's it. Now, this is the thing. We know when those rocks were formed. When, when lava comes spewing out and rocks are formed, we actually know the age of them. When they set, basically, it sets the clock to zero. They're brand new rocks. If the dates aren't right, when we know the age of the rocks, how can we be sure that the dates are correct when we don't know the age of the rocks? That's the basic logic from what we just found before. Uh, another thing is diamonds. Diamonds are assumed to have been formed between one and three billion years ago. And yet they've done carbon testing on diamonds and found that there's still C14 in diamonds. Now, carbon-14 has can only really be tested up until about 50,000 years ago. So at very best case scenario, 50,000 years old. Very best case scenario. But all of these things point to the fact that the Earth is young and not old. Other things are about the equilibrium, uh, which is basically the, the rate of formation of carbon-14 and its decay. And it takes about 30,000 years for it to actually reach equilibrium, and it's not in equilibrium yet, according to some studies. Which basically means that our Earth is younger than 30,000 years old. Does anyone know what this word means? The picture might give it away. Kelvin, of course, you know what this means. <laughs> Dendrochronology, which is basically an, a dating method, or an, uh, looking at the age of the Earth, by tree rings. And the idea is that we can get a really old tree with different tree rings and we can calculate the, we know that things were, you know, we can get like a time scale from the rings and then they find a fossil, they carbon date it and they try to match it up. So this tree, we know it's like 700 years old, we found this fossil and it kind of matches, the pattern matches here and so on and so forth. 
But recent studies have discovered that under certain conditions, trees can actually produce multiple growth rings in one year. Sometimes they produce two, sometimes they produce five. And that means that unless we know the circumstances in which the trees were growing and before the flood, what kind of situation do we have? This amazingly fertile world where there's so much water and a whole different way for plants and things to grow. If it was a whole lot different, the trees would have been growing at an incredibly rapid rate. If today we can put on five growth rings in one year or two growth rings in one year, depending on the changing of the circumstances and the environment, would actually change the growth rings. So that's just a little bit about those. And now I get to the part of the sermon that I was looking forward to. Creation versus evolution in the church. The first point I want to make is that there are people today who believe in God, but also evolution as well. Now, it's essentially the idea that God started, he was the one behind the Big Bang, who started the evolutionary process, and he just let it go. And, you know, we, we, we evolved and little things happen, and we're the result of the, the, the process of evolution that God himself started in the beginning. Now, that sounds all right, but if we actually draw implications from this, that kind of God you would never want to serve, and it's completely different from the God of the Bible. Essentially, if God used the theory of evolution to create the world, God used pain and suffering and death as tools to create us today. The theory of evolution is all based on the survival of the fittest, munching one another, there's this death, and pro this death process and suffering and things like that, and you're growing and growing and growing and growing and becoming something better. It would mean that our God... The God of the Bible, the Bible says God is love, that God used pain and suffering to create our world today. Interesting perspective. But now I want to take it a step further. Is it possible to believe in a six-day literal creation and still be an evolutionist? I'll just ask that question again. Is it possible to believe in a six-day literal creation and still be an evolutionist? I believe it's possible. And I want to take you through a concept that I read um, many years ago that really changed the way that I changed my perspectives. The theory of evolution goes like this. You start off with nothing, and over a long period of time, through ice ages and ups and downs, you finally get to something that's a whole lot better. Creation, on the other hand, God spoke and it was done. You got this immediate, just this the power of God's word creates things. I want to ask you today, in your experience with God, in your relationship with God, what has your journey modelled more accurately? A model of just like ups and downs, just his failures and, duh, 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 and just hoping one day it's going to get better? Or have you experienced the creative power of God's word to transform your life? Have you experienced the power of God's word? I want you to turn with me um, very quickly to the book of 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 4, and we're going to read in verse 6. And I love this verse. It says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts, 
to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I want to read it one more time. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What I find so interesting about this particular verse is that Paul is reminding the church that the very same God who who spoke and light came shining into the physical world is doing the exact same thing in our hearts. That our hearts are a dark and vacuous void and God is trying to shine light, the knowledge of his glory, into our existence. If you go over with me to chapter 5 and verse 17, the Bible says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. When we have an experience with Jesus, it's actually a creation experience. He gets to function as creator God once again and reform our lives. Lives that once were dark and vacuous and, and void and, and, and this terrible place. He actually enters into our hearts and does a work of recreation once again. And so the question comes, I just want to bring it back to this again. What kind of God do you serve? Do you serve the creator God? Have you experienced the power of his word today? The greatest evidence for creation, in my, my understanding, you know, we, we've, I've, I've told you today that when you read on, online, you'll find this argument. It'll be re- rebuffed by this argument. They'll make this argument. They'll argue back again. It seems like all of these arguments have no ability to be able to change the life. But I tell you what, there is an argument that is stronger than all. And that's when a sinner is transformed by beholding the glory of God and is is recreated from the inside out and transformed. That is a miracle above all things. You know, the devil would have us believe that as Christians, our life needs to be like this. You know, our life is a journey. But the devil basically says, one day, one day things will be better. One day you'll be able to overcome your temper. One day you'll have love in your heart for so-and-so. One day you'll be able to forgive. And there's this ice age, there's this, there's this big journey of just like ups and downs and just slowly trying to become something more than what you are. Is that what God designed for us, friends? Did God design for us to experience a walk with him that's modeling actually the, the, the theory of evolution? of starting here and ending up there, but through this massive big process of ups and downs, pains and defeats and and whatnot. In my personal experience, I just want to tell you my personal experience. I think I may have shared this with you before. When I started studying my Bible, I was absolutely overwhelmed at what God had done for me. And I remember studying my Bible for hours every day and praying for the same. And I was often in tears, just overwhelmed at what God had done for me. And I remember, I think I've told you about how I used to relate to my brother and how he used to just frustrate me to no end. Oh, it's just incredible. I just couldn't believe it. It's the the challenge of, of having a brother, you know. And I started being convicted that the way that I treat my brother is not how God designed me to treat him. And I tried desperately to get rid of the feelings 
of, of frustration and various things like that, but they wouldn't go away. That is until I claimed the promises of God's word and God transformed me from the inside out and actually put love within my heart for this person. My brother and I have the best relationship today. I'm so grateful for that. Another situation I think I've told you as well is when I was Bible working at some point, I was working with the most challenging human being on the planet. And I, I'm, I'm confident in saying that this was, I don't think it gets much more challenging than this. It was overwhelming and my heart had just nothing but just frustration toward this person. I was just, ah. And I'd just be often, it just eaten me up from the inside out. And there's nothing I could do to get rid of it. I'd, I'd just be trying to do everything to get it out of my mind, but it was just eating me up from the inside. And I started praying. I said, God, can you take away this, this, this desire to just, this frustration? Can you please put, put within me a desire to love this human being? It's impossible. I can't do it. And I remember um, getting in my car one day to drive home to see my family. And I was like, yes, I get away from this guy. I can go home and just spend time with my family. And a voice said to me, Braden, invite him to come with you to spend time with your family this weekend. And I was just, in my heart, I was just sitting there. I was like, no, I just want to go home. I want to be with my family. I want to just get away from this guy. It's just so, it's just so overwhelming. It's just so discouraging. It's so negative. It just, I can't even invite him to pray with me without him thinking that I'm exerting spiritual authority over him. I can't even go, oh, hey, let's, let's get together and, and pray. He'd be like, this, I could just sense this iciness. And it was just breaking me. And I said, that desire does not come from me because I'd never want him to come home. And so I got out of the car and I walked to him and I said, hey mate, would you like to come home and spend the weekend with my family? He lit up. And I listened to his, his weird country music all the way home. And, and when I got home, as I was sitting in the car, I was just beaming, absolutely beaming. I was so happy I'd never experienced a joy like that in my life because I realized that a miracle of creation proportions a miracle of just magnificent proportions had taken place in my heart. And I was listening to that, that weird, funky music, and I was like, I'm happy. I'm happy because I'm freed from my, my anger, I'm freed from my frustration, I'm freed from all that different stuff. And he was able to be embraced in my family's love for that weekend. You know, he didn't grow up in a family like mine. He grew up in a family like maybe one of, one of you have grown up in. A family where there's, there's screaming, a family where there's brokenness, a family where there's, there's pain and there's, there's not much love. He never experienced what it was like to be loved. And that's the reason why he treated me the way that he did. And I was celebrating. I'm like, God, you're amazing. You're able to transform hearts today. That are no, it's no less significant if God changes your heart than for God to say, let there be light in the beginning. Because matter obeys him. <laughs> But you and I have free wills. It's much easier for God to speak atoms into existence because they will always obey. It's much more difficult for God to transform your life because you can say, no. You can push away when God is trying to do something in your life. But it gets better. I, I was praying, Lord God, please help me. I never, ever want to feel those negative feelings toward him again. I don't want to have malice. I want to have love for this human being. And... Um, I remember one day I was just giving him advice um, about something. I said, hey, this particular person really enjoys Bible studies being done in this particular way. They just loved it. Da, 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 da. It's just a little bit, of a little bit of advice. And he just blew up. He said, you don't have to tell me to do my job. He just went off. 
At that moment, how would you be feeling? If you've been doing this longer, and then someone who's just brand new to this thing goes off at you because you give them some encouraging advice. What's the natural thing? Come on. And you just get angry and just start thinking in your mind, what a, what a loser. You know, That's the kind of thought that you normally think. But I want to tell you what, friends. In that moment, I didn't feel anything but love for that human being. I had no, not one agitating thought, not one frustration, not one piece of anger. And I just felt just compassion and love for him. And I just dropped down to my knees and the only desire I had was to pray for him. And I realized that the Creator was at work once again. Doing a work far greater than speaking animals and fish and birds into existence. Far greater because I have a free will. And God has transformed someone just like me. And you know there's a Bible verse, I think it's in the book of Job. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. No one can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing, but that's what God's doing every single day. And if you are seeing your attitudes change toward people around you, if you're, if you're sensing there's this love that's coming in your heart for someone that you just drives you up the wall, if you are sensing and seeing in your life that you're taking time out of your life to be a blessing to people who curse you, to pray for people who despitefully use you, if you see that taking place in your life, you have first-hand evidence of the work of the Creator God in your life today. Because, friends, people in the Dark Ages, in the monasteries, they were doing desperate things to deal with their carnal natures, their sinful natures. They would beat themselves. Even in some countries today, I think in the Philippines maybe, people still do this tradition of whipping themselves. People do a whole bunch of things to deal with the, the bad person on the inside. If I lay in the snow, if I scrub the floor, if I memorize this, if I do this, if I just like run away and never see them again, I'll be, I'll be fine. People do every different thing to try to deal with the brokenness they have inside, but only Christ can fix that. Only Christ can fix that. And I want to ask you again, what kind of God do you serve today? Do you serve the Creator? Because if there's a certain person in your life right now that you have this really angry thoughts toward, you don't have to wait 20 years for those to disappear. You don't have to wait 20 years or 15 years or a week or a month for those to disappear. The Word of God is powerful to put inside of us victory today. And I love there's a beautiful statement that Ellen White has. She says, In every command and in every promise of the Scripture is the power the very life of God by which the command may be fulfilled and the promise realized. She says the very words themselves have power to be, to be able to accomplish the things that they say they will. If God says, love one another as I have loved you, love your enemies, that has the creative power that created the world back in the beginning to transform your life today. And I've experienced it. It is the most amazing thing in the world. There's a quote here by Brandon Manning. You may have heard it. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Friends, God has put it in the hands of his church. His desire is that the manifold riches of his glory and grace would be revealed through us sitting here at Mayland. So that people would literally look at us and go, there's got to be a God somewhere. And I read a quote. 
may our life as Christians seriously challenge the idea that there is no God in the life of atheists. Something like it was much more poetic the way that they did it, but may our life as Christians literally cause people to stop and think, why in the world did you do that? Why in the world did you treat me with kindness when I treated you with, with unkindness? That doesn't make sense. Why did you do that? Friends, we can we could give you all of the slides from our presentations and you could find an unsuspecting atheist down the road and you could run him through the material. But friends, the greatest argument in favour of the Christian faith is a loving and lovable Christian. That's miraculous. That's present tense. That's observable. That's observable creation when your life has been transformed. And only when you have been transformed can you see and understand the joy and power that comes from that. It's, a, it's beautiful. In the book Ministry of Healing, there is an eloquence far more powerful than the eloquence of words in the quiet, consistent life of a pure, true Christian. What a man is, what a man is has more influence than what he says. The officers who were sent to Jesus came back with the report that never man spoke as he spoke. But the reason for this is that never man lived as he lived. Had his life been other than, than it was, he could not have spoken as he did. His words bore with them a convincing power because they came from a heart pure and holy, full of love and sympathy, benevolence and truth. The badge of Christianity is not an outward sign, not the wearing of a cross or a crown, but it is that which reveals the union of man with God. By the power of His grace manifested in the transformation of character, the world is to be convinced that God sent His Son as its Redeemer. Notice that. By the power of His grace manifested in the transformation of character, the world is to be convinced that God has sent His Son as its Redeemer. No other influence can surround... Sorry, no other influence that can surround the human soul has such power as the influence of an unselfish life. The strongest argument in favour of the gospel is a loving and lovable Christian. Isn't that a powerful statement? And friends, I, the reason why I've, I've shared this um, particular angle on this topic today, we could have spent so much time going through the science, but the more I look at it, it just depends on the way people look at things. If they've decided that the world is a certain age, that's the way they see it. Friends, the best way to convince people that there is a God is not to come and grab our PowerPoint slides, as useful as they can be. The greatest way you can convince this world is to have Christ living in your life. And not just in a theoretical, you know, just a novelty sense. You know, I want Jesus. No, no. In a practical way where you treat the person sitting opposite you in this church the person who lives next door to you with this unselfishness, this kindness that literally will melt a heart. The only thing that can do it. The only thing that can melt a heart. And friends, I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And there's a verse that I often used to skip over because I was like, I don't think I understand what it means, but I think I understand it a little bit more now. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In verse 26. Have you ever wondered why there are so many people holding PhDs? And mind you, there are a lot of people holding PhDs that are who uphold the six-day literal creation of Genesis. There's lots of them. 
But have you ever wondered why there are so many people that seem to be the intelligent, the wise, the rich, and the famous in our world today that seem to be ascribing to the idea that the world is four and a half billion years old? People often go, well, if creation's true, why do, why do all these guys not believe in it? The Bible has the answer. Verse 26 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Paul is saying to the church, um, the Corinthian church, look around the pews. There's not many mighty, not many wise, not many noble. He's not saying that everyone's silly, but he says all of these people that everyone looks up to in society, they're not often in the pews. And I want to ask the question, why is that? Pride. Why is it hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom? Having a bigger bank balance, how does that stop you from getting into the kingdom? When you have lots of possessions, what does it lead you to be? Pride. Proud, sorry. It leads you to be proud. The smarter we think ourselves to be, the more authoritative and more, I guess, determined we are that we can see the world the way it really is, the less and less we'll be able to see things for how, they, for how they really are. Remember that statement at the beginning, the greatest enemy to objectivity is pride. The greatest enemy is pride. And I just want to challenge each one of you. In everything in your life, you're looking for answers, you're looking for truth. You cannot find it whilst hanging on to pride at the same time. Humility, which comes by asking Jesus for it, is the only way that we can really see things for how they really are. Otherwise, we will see things for how we want to see them, because that's the way that I've seen it as I've done my research. So my challenge for you today is, um, will you be part of the greatest evidence for creation? And that is by allowing Christ to once again take you to places that you've never been. Maybe you've experienced the power of Christ's grace and transforming your life. Maybe you haven't. But I'd just like to invite you to raise your hand if you'd like to experience this to a new degree and would like to ask Jesus in every area of your life where you realize that there is frustration, anger, all those different things, and ask Jesus to get rid of it. Can you raise your hand if that's you? Because in the church, this is where God is wanting to make the biggest answer to this world. May you be the biggest piece of evidence in favor of Christianity that an unbelieving world will ever see. May that be your experience. Lord, I want to pray that our Christian lives would model the creation perspective where we see you speaking your word into our lives and things just being miraculously transformed by your grace. Father, I want to pray to you, Lord, for each head bowed. And for anyone who's bearing heavy burdens today, Lord God, may they be reminded that you're a God who understands, you're a God who cares, and you're a God who gave your life for them. And I would like to pray to you, Lord, that you would help me, help us, Lord, to be the greatest, the greatest evidence 
that an unbelieving world can see that you are the creator God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This message was made available by Adventist Streaming. For more resources like this, visit adventist-streaming.org. Academy will now sing, I Surrender All.
Do you ever pray and wonder if God heard your prayer? You prayed and prayed for someone to come to Jesus or for your children to come to faith in Christ or for your parents to reconcile and nothing, at least not that you could see. A couple of things to remember. God isn't in the business of forcing people against their will. If he was, we'd be nothing more than robots programmed by God without freedom of choice. No fun. That's not God's way. The other thing to remember is that God hears your prayers all the time, no matter how it looks. Remember these words, David writing in Psalm 65, verse 2. Oh, you who hear prayer, to you all flesh will come. You who hear prayer. David was convinced and he never got everything he asked for. Be sure you pray in faith. Don't let doubt weaken your prayers and hinder your relationship with God. I'm John Bradshaw for It Is Written. Let's live today by every word. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.